Hey folks, it's Jeff Fuzzy Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah! Crowdfunders, hopefully you guys are doing well out there in the land of crowdfunding land. Hopefully you're staying warm if you're, you know, basically in like three quarters of the U.S. here. You know, we we have been frozen for the last uh, three days. Um, but yeah, and I mean, we're coming out of that here too. So um, I appreciate you guys uh, checking in and listening. We have a great episode coming up today. We're going to be talking to Jordan Draper. Uh, Jordan um, is a board gamer, and he's made these amazing. Uh, games called the Tokyo series. He's got a whole um, allotment of them that he's making. It's it's kind of, it's a very interesting story how he's laying out board games. So as some of you out there know, I'm not a huge board gamer, but I'm always fascinated by you know product launches and you know still putting together what it takes to launch a product. So that interview is coming up later. So obviously stay tuned for that because um, we're going to get into a lot of cool stuff too, just about Kickstarters because Jordan's run quite a few of them as well. So we're going to get in the weeds and we're going to get dirty in a little bit here. So all right, so what else is going on? So I mentioned, you know, we've yeah, we've definitely had uh, some coldness here, and I'm not gonna lie, I am frantic over here, absolutely frantic. My kids have been bonkers. Uh, sent to son, sent my son to school today crying. So that's always how you want to start your mornings because he is being a jackass and not listening, and then you know decided to spray some sort of you know, iridescent thing all over the bathroom so much so that it got all, all the floor got wet. Then he slips and falls as he's trying to brush his teeth. And it's just, he's just chaos. He's just out of control. And why is that? Well, two days of sitting inside cooped up, not doing anything basically. And that's how you spin out a absolute monster. So everybody's just been in his whirlwind, his tornado today. So we've got that going on, which is just amazing. Um, but yeah, and then on top of that, it just adds this, you know, cabin fever-esque, you know, you can't do anything. Our little house is destroyed because there's just stuff everywhere, and you're building forts, and you just... Oh, and then I work from home. I work from home. So it's just been 48 hours of... <sighs> you can feel it in the neck. You can feel it in the back, the hands. It's just so very excited to get out to yoga today. Um, didn't... Oh, and then we also, oh, because I'm in Michigan, we had like a big gas problem, so we had to turn our heat way down, um, so that way that there was no Bikram yoga on Wednesday because of it, and Thursday night, so I just couldn't get out of the house. It was just like one of those almost perfect storms of like, there's nothing you can do about it, just send some emails. So, talking about Bikram yoga, I have something to discuss. Now, some of you out there may be this guy that I'm going to describe here in a minute. And if you are, I am talking to you. Seriously, I'm straight up talking to you. If you're not that guy and you're more like the guy like me, then you're going to completely relate to what I'm going to say here next. And you're going to go, yeah, yeah, I have, that's an awkward scenario. I'm going to discuss right now the fully nude man in the, in the locker room who has a 100% conversation with you. And you're literally like, it would be no different than talking to somebody at the office. You're, you're pretty close to each other. But you have all your clothes on, and he is fully nude. There is nothing comfortable about that situation whatsoever. This happened to me uh, last week, um, and you know, I think I've I've seen this guy a, a bunch of times. He's obviously very comfortable in the yoga experience, uh, and um, so just you know, I'm just I'm in there, 
and you know I'm, I'm getting i'm dressed i'm still sweaty you know and and i have a i get in and out of locker rooms that's my vibe i'm in and i'm out so this guy starts this conversation with like three of us right so these like three other guys who are just like you know we're all just getting dressed and getting out of there and he is fully here i all am and let's have a conversation about yoga and uh you know what it does for you throughout the day and how you feel. And this was like a solid 10 minute conversation where he was just full on, full on dude. And I'm just not that guy, man. Some of you guys, now, like I said, some of you guys might be this. You might be the nude talker. Put some clothes on, man. You gotta just put some clothes on. There's no reason we don't, I can wait. I'll sit and I'll have the conversation. I, I enjoy the conversation. I just need you to have some pants on. It's that simple. Even some, just some underwear. Just some underwear would make a big difference too, right? So that was the other day. So tell me out there. Comment, you know, leave a comment if you're a, if you're a new talker in the locker room or if you're a get in and get out kind of guy because I'm a get in and get out. I think majority of people are now a get in and get out. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm anticipating. I don't think there's very many new talkers anymore. I think that's a different time. And this guy was a bit older. Oh, one more quick thing about this. There is another guy very much much older uh probably in his 80s and that's awesome that he does he's doing yoga like no offense at all to this but he is a shower with the curtain open guy that's a whole nother level of you know what is going on here there's a curtain you can close that curtain and if you're concerned about you know let's just say you're concerned about the pop-in like the oh sorry 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 i didn't know i didn't know you were in there yeah you're going to get that more with an open shower curtain than the closed shower curtain. You got to close the shower curtain, right? I mean, that's a no brainer. And do you say something to somebody? Cause I'll tell you, there's, a, there's been two or three times now where, you know, the way the locker room set, there's like four, four showers and then there's like a bench and there's like a little, little, little half wall thing or something. I'm getting dressed and you just turn around. You're just, you just got a guy with a shower on 80 years old scrubbing down. You're just like, come on, man, you can shut that. You can shut that curtain, dude. You can shut that curtain. That's that's what the curtain's there for, really. I mean, that's the whole point of the curtain. Why have the curtain if you're not going to shut it? So I hope you guys are enjoying my Bikram yoga or Bikram yoga. I don't even know how to pronounce this half the time. Bikram yoga, uh, you know, locker room talk, men's locker room talk, man. What's going on in this locker room? It's odd. It's odd. So I'm going to get ready to go there in a minute. Um I'm gonna go get my sweat on here, get my get get my uh, get my stretching going, uh, make my body do some weird things that it's not supposed to do. So I got that coming up, which is nice. I'm gonna do that here in just a moment. But um, but yeah, so that's what's going on around here. We're just trying to get out of the house, trying to keep my kids sane, trying to keep my marriage together, just the usual stuff. Trying to keep this business afloat uh, during our slow periods, and uh, rock and roll this thing man just rock and roll so all right what can you guys do to help so if you are a listener of successfully funded first of all thank you that's awesome second thing i need you to do make sure you leave a review on itunes right and if you're not a subscriber this is your first time here hit the subscribe button hit the subscribe button get these interviews it's fun um like i said leave a review tell your friends about this thing if you are thinking about launching a product and you think you know you might need some help obviously reach out i'd love to give you a 20 minute call and just kind of go through all of the stuff i've seen there's literally nothing that i haven't seen when it comes to crowdfunding and projects that work and don't work and just make sure i can i can really help make sure i put you on a, on the right direction so those are some things you can do here if you're uh, if you're interested but if not 
why don't you stick around and enjoy my interview with Jordan? We're going to be talking about some board games here. And uh, this, oh, by the way, and this campaign is doing awesome. So go check it out. Uh, Tokyo series. It's awesome. Jordan, let's go ahead and kick my interview. All right, Jordan, the red light's on. I hope you don't get nervous. Hopefully you can handle uh, handle that pressure there. If you can see that, thought <laughs> just thinking at you there. But, um, well, let's yep. start with a quick sound check. Uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Ooh, what did I have? I guess I had cereal. I had some strawberry wheat cereal with freeze-dried strawberries in it. There's not a big selection in Norway, which is <laughs> where I'm at. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, strawberry wheat. You had some, some, some nice, was it fresh strawberries frozen or just frozen strawberries on it? Uh, they were like already in the box, so they were okay. dried and not cold. <laughs> all right, well that's healthy. It sounds healthy. So, uh, all right, cool. Um, now, are you a big breakfast eater? Do you eat breakfast every every day? I, I love breakfast. I don't actually eat it every day, but I absolutely love it. I think growing up, I was into cereal and American breakfast, and then when I started traveling around the world, uh, it got a little harder. Like in Japan, breakfast is not what you think it would be. <laughs> it's like fish and rice and uh like savory dinner stuff and i'm not into that <laughs> yeah i don't think i would be into that either last day i've never really or wanted like sushi or something for breakfast i'm not a you know or some raw fish no i don't want any of that sort of stuff for breakfast yeah cool. <laughs> awesome i think we're sounding good here why don't we jump right into it so jordan why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about what you're currently raising money for over on kickstarter Sure. So I am running a campaign for some games that I designed about Tokyo. So I've lived in Tokyo for about three years in total. Uh, and I'm doing a series of games called the Tokyo series, which is going to be 12 games in total. And they're all themed around some Japanese cultural thing that most people would find mundane, such as uh, vending machines or the metro system, a laundromat, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and then the Cool thing is you can play them all independently or you can mix them together to play more games. So you kind of just get a whole bunch of value out of this set of boxes that I'm doing. Oh, that's awesome. So what, like, I guess, what type of game of this for, for somebody who's not really looking at it right now online, how would you kind of describe the game, the game flow? What, what's it kind of like? How do you play it? Yeah, so they're all a little bit different. Um, they range from like games where I have guest designers come in taking these 3D pieces that I made and they make their own rules out of them. And so you get like 20 games in the box and it's just everything from like dexterity where you're flicking these little bottles, for example, trying to knock over other ones in a certain order. And then my heavier games, like the one about the Metro system is, uh, you know, it's economics and you're basically investing into different train lines and moving around on this map and trying to build stations. And then like, you have like cross investments with other players. So it's a little bit like uh, Monopoly in comparison as far as like you're owning things and players are, are getting benefits from different stuff and cross ownerships. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's like 26 games in the first three boxes, for an example, to show you like how many games are in there. Uh, and I think I'm the first person that's mixed games in that way to, yeah. to kind of bring the whole series together. Um, and since they're all about Tokyo and like the life there and the culture, it makes a lot of sense to, to make new game rules out of the same pieces. Sure, sure. That, that's sweet. So is this something, do you make a lot of board games or is this your first time jumping into it? No, I've published eight games now. Uh, and then I have seven more coming out this year. So I've been super busy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of games. I started in 2016 uh, and I ran two Kickstarters and those both did about, 3000 us mm -hmm. uh so i was just getting started and i was hand making them because i couldn't get enough to make a print run right. and manufacture it um so that was like eating up a lot of time and then i started building a following 
because people were interested in what I was doing and then uh, grow the community from there. And now I'm like getting almost 3000 backers uh, for most of my campaigns. That's awesome. Um, Have all the games sort of been similar in terms of style and vibe or are they kind of all over the place from when you started? They're all pretty over the place, except I think my main overarching theme is economics. So I, may, I usually make economic games, but I'm branching out into more social games now. Um, like one, my new game in the new uh, Kickstarter, one is about a game show. So somebody's a game show host, and then everybody else is a contestant. And you're picking like five games out of these 70 that are in the box, or you can make up your own. And then, you know, you play through those five games and award points. So I'm branching out to try different stuff because uh, I've played board games for about 10 years now. And they can get a little bit, uh, not monotonous, but, you know, they, they repeat a lot of the same mechanics. They repeat a lot of the same things. When you're really deep into that hobby and you've, you know, played over a thousand different board games, you start trying to see something new that hasn't been done and try to push that through. <laughs> so where is sort of like this, let, let's take the Tokyo series one that we're talking about right now. Where was sort of the start of this idea? How, how do you start putting together you know, I guess maybe the prototype or the, the, the first gameplay or h- how do you put that tar- start together and where does that idea come from? Yeah, for me, uh, all of my games are from real life experience. So I've made a game um, about like a weekend market in Turin, Italy. When I was living there, I, I actually went out to this weekend market all the time and got the inspiration for the game, for example. In Tokyo, it's the same thing. Uh, I'll see like vending machines and I love trying all the different drinks and the different bottles and flavors and everything. So I wanted to turn that into a game and express that interest and that inspiration that maybe you wouldn't be thought about as like a game theme. Uh, and then I'll start thinking about mechanics after the 3D pieces. So I studied architecture a little bit before dropping out. Uh, and then I'm still coming up with architectural designs all the time. And I think that has a lot of influence into my games because they all have very intricate 3D pieces that are usually yeah. formal molded and stuff. That's cool. So w- where did you grow up? Because it seems like you've, you've talked about traveling a lot, but where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Salt Lake City, uh, and I was there until my early 20s. And then I went to Japan uh, and just kept jumping around between Japan and Europe uh, and every once in a while back to the States. But now it's been like, I don't know, six years since I've mostly just been out of the States traveling around, which I love it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I bet. How did you make that jump? Why did you get to Japan? I love the culture. I did martial arts when I was in uh, high school. So I did uh, karate and also kendo. Um, and then I, know, I got an itch to go over there and just see if it was everything I thought it was because I was loving like the culture online and seeing what everything was like over there. So I did a, an exchange um, just to do an intensive language program to study Japanese. Mm. So I did that for three months in 2011. And then I got hooked after that and just kept going back. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So and then right now you're in Norway. So what, what, what made you go from, uh, from Japan over to Norway and stuff? Right? Like, how did you get where you are right now? Yeah, so I met a girl in uh, Tokyo from Norway. It's always about a girl. Yeah, that's always what it's about, right? (laughs) Uh, And then now I have friends all over the world. So I'm like jumping to London and Oslo. And sometimes I'm in uh, Spain and Valencia. I have a friend down there, um, friends on the East Coast. So usually I'm like three months somewhere and then I'll get up and go somewhere else for three months. It's kind of been the repeating pattern for the last three years. (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. Now, are your board games always inspired by some of these travels? It sounds like that that's a huge part of it, that maybe you're taking from all these sort of different experiences and, and putting them into board games. But do you find that the board games, the board game culture itself is in each place that you're going? Is it just as strong where you are in Norway as opposed to Salt Lake, Utah? Like, like what, what's the culture like to, to play these games? Yeah, it's completely different. Um, Japan has a very unique 
set on this culture because they have little space. So they make everything in small boxes. That's their first constraint. And the second thing is that there's not a lot of publishers out there that are like putting out AAA content. So it's mostly people who are like graphic designers or artists uh, that are just doing it in their free time and they're like hand making games. So there's something called the Tokyo Game Market that happens twice a year. And it's just like more publishers than you'd have at any other convention in the world, but they're all just like some guy that made 50 copies of some idea he had, right? Or, or girl. And then, uh, yeah, and then it's um, a different way that you approach the design of the game. Whereas in the US, it's like huge box AAA titles. And that's, that's mostly the thing, which I fall more towards the Japanese style. I have very small compact boxes and I just put a ton of stuff in there um, and content design and pieces and everything. Um, but in Germany, it's a different thing too. Like they love wooden pieces in Germany, for example, which is not as big other places. Um, everywhere has their own take on it. In Norway, they mostly just import games because there's not a lot of designers out here, but there's a few. <laughs> oh, interesting, interesting. So once you sort of have this sort of spark of an idea, what starts to become your first step towards you know, putting it together, getting gameplay? What, what do you start to do after that spark happens? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I sit down and then I think about some interesting mechanics that would work with the theme that I thought of. Um, so for example, if you're making an economics game, there's like so many paths that you can take. Do you just have money as the win condition, right? How much whoever has the most, or does the money when you hit a certain point is the win condition? Are there like resources that you're trying to get that are also a value? And then are you putting those together? So like, that's the first step. How how somebody going to win the game? And then what kind of interesting mechanics do I want to mix together that I've seen before? Or do I want to try something completely different and just do an experiment? And, and how do you know when you're sort of ready? I mean, is it something that you gameplay with certain people because you know that they know games or do you try to play it with just, I don't know, an average person who, you know, uh, let me just sit down. Do you get it? Do you get what I'm doing here? But how, what starts the process where you go, I'm, we're ready like to move to the next step? Or do you ever get to a point where it's like, yeah, this idea is not, not a very good idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've definitely thrown away quite a few ideas, but uh, usually I have a pretty good instinct of, if I feel like something is good. Um, I design most of my games like 80% of the way done within a 12-hour period almost always, mm -hmm. and then I bring them out and it's like, you know, another eight or nine months development after that. But right. if the idea is pretty good, then I'll, I'll ask somebody or a few close friends to play with me, uh, see what they think about it, and then if it's got the potential which... Uh, I feel it can go somewhere. Then I just sit down and do all the artwork because I do my own artwork too. Um, and, you know, bring it out and start playtesting it. Send out to people who want to playtest. I have a mailing list of about 100 people who just want to playtest my games early. Um, so I'll send, send it out to them to just download a print and play so they can cut out the pieces. Uh, and then they'll give me feedback and I can kind of develop it from there and work on it some more. That's cool. That's cool. And then, and then for you... I mean, obviously you've ran, what, six Kickstarters? I don't have any. I thought I saw, I saw it somewhere. Was it six? Uh, I've ran a total of nine, including nine, okay. all the ones that I've done. Not all under my name, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, in your mind, is there a step that you need to be at before you go to Kickstarter? Or where, where does Kickstarter land in the board game sort of timeline of like, all right, this is when we want to launch on here to do X, Y, and Z. Where do, how do you put it in the, into your timeline? Yeah, I think you have to have a following first before you launch. Um, once you have that, it's a little bit easier to get started. When I first was doing it, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I had some like pretty graphics, but I didn't have enough people following around. So it was just grabbing you know, a few here and there on Kickstarter. And that's how I was getting. Um, but now 
every time I launch a new project, it's like, I feel like I've got to level up. So I'm, I'm making crisper graphics. I'm doing all my own renderings now and just spending like, you know, two months building the page instead of before it would be like a week or two. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so yeah, every time I, I feel like I need to step it up a bit, but if you're going to do a game, you have to have game rules finished that are on there and people can read their whole way through. Uh, a video is a must in, in the game world. Like you have a much higher chance of funding just in general, but especially with games. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you have a how to play video as well, that's great. And then reviews from reviewers, if you can get them. Yeah. Those are kind of the big four things. And then you want to have pretty artwork because that's going to sell it or not. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's amazing how much it comes down to the artwork. So you mentioned that you did all your own art, artwork or, or all, like, do you always do all your own artwork or is it just for this game in particular? No, I'm, I'm a one man show uh, doing everything like the manufacturing artwork design and, and the whole deal, except for some of my games, which have guest designers um, come in and make their own rules using components that I made. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. That's interesting. Um, is it something that you envision bringing on other people? Like where do you see sort of the arc of this going? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I'm at a pretty good balancing point where I've automated enough stuff that I can just keep running it by myself. But like the growth is the next big thing. And I've had a lot of inner turmoil about if I should hire somebody for email support or, or a community manager at this point, Yeah, um, because it's eating up a lot of my time during the day to do the monotonous things that like, I love talking to people, but I don't just want to answer emails in my right. free time, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is how you back on Kickstarter. Click here. <laughs> yeah. Stuff. yeah. Um, well, I think that's challenging for a lot of people on scale, whether you're doing a board game or any sort of product on here. It's just where that, where that point is where you're either going to grow and be, I don't know, I don't, your games are in every target in the planet or whatever it might be, or are you just doing games still really, really well and just sort of being that sort of... Um, uh, one man band, like you're, like you're just talking about right now. I mean, for you, do you see yourself where these games are like everywhere? I mean, is it, is that like something that you're envisioning or do you want to be more of a focused game designer? Uh, I mean, I've done a pretty good job growing so far and I've actually just started licensing some designs to other companies who are, are pushing the games everywhere. So like I've got a game that'll be out in Barnes and Noble and the big AAA stores in America soon. And like, I realize I can do that, but I can also make my boutique games and focus on them. And the more that I've thought about it, like I love running the business side because I just have been an entrepreneur for 10 years and mm -hmm. shifting that into games wasn't like a really big difference for me to run the company, right? But um, I love designing games as well and I'm pretty quick at it. So I, I would probably enjoy doing that a little bit more all the time. I need to find that shift, but it's the hard shift to find, right? Like right. getting enough help to do it yeah. and the right people. <laughs> So, so you mentioned about automation and stuff, and I think for a lot of project creators, it's a Kickstarters are really overwhelming. They, you know, you've got to, I mean, as you know, you've got your hands in a gazillion cookie jars and you're handling everything. Yep. What are you doing to sort of stay focused, stay on top of stuff, allow your allow yourself to still build a community, still build games, still have a life? What are you doing to sort of automate some of those processes? Yeah, uh, shipping ongoing sales is a big thing. So I'm uh, partnering with fulfillment partners that can just take the orders and ship them out and I don't have to think about it or do anything. For example, um, when you're running a Kickstarter and you're doing the fulfillment process, I used to ship everything by hand because it was cheaper. I'm like, there's just no way I'm going to do that again. Uh, the, the most I ever did was like 580 shipments, but man, you just hire a fulfillment partner and like you hire a shipment partner to, to ship the games from wherever to wherever and you get a manufacturer. Um, so for me, the biggest thing is just communicating with everybody because like people need replacement parts and people have questions and whatever. And like the top level emails are important. Um, but 
you can automate almost every other step of the way with a product, but you should still be hiring people to do certain things. Like, you know, you need to get help to run conventions if you got a booth. Uh, I used to just run it myself the whole time. And like board game conventions are like four days straight and you're going to work like 12 hours a day. So you're going to just get burnt out. It's going to be too much. So um, now I have people who want to work and that I can walk away from my booth and go communicate with other people and make connections. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I think it's probably the same for most startups. I would imagine like you just, you just have to figure out the things that are taking up most of your time and kind of outsource those. But for doing e-commerce, there's a lot of, tools you can do as well, but just take time away that you don't need to be doing. Sure. Sure. So what keeps you up at night when you're running a Kickstarter campaign? Like what's the thing that you're like most focused on and, and most concerned about? Yeah, it, it used to be a bit stressful because it was a lot of my income. And when I was like shifting between, I used to run an Etsy store and then I shifted to, to just making board games. Um, so like right after that shift, it was kind of nerve wracking to make sure I got enough. And I felt like I always had to be like pushing to try to move the project on. Right. Now I've like reached a pretty good equilibrium where I don't feel stressed about it in the same way. It's just, uh, I'm thinking about like, what's the next update or like, how do I communicate with my backers and what's interesting and fun to show them that will like keep them engaged with the project. Right. Because sure. that's the biggest thing is running out of steam over 30 days. No matter what, you're going to hit the dip in the middle and like, you're not going to get much traffic. But at the same time, you can still uh, reinvigorate the people that are interested in what you're doing, your community, and then they'll go out and share it some more and like retweet the stuff that you're uh, just presenting for the first time. So saving some of that stuff in there and figuring out when to release it and making sure you have it ready is important. That's cool. How did you ultimately like get into board games? I mean, what was, the, what was that moment that you started getting into them? Was it when you were growing up or was it later in life? I mean, I used to play a lot of games as a kid, but they were like classic games that everybody plays, checkers, chess, Monopoly, uh, stuff like that. And then I didn't actually start playing like heavier board games until 2007. I met a friend uh, who had about 800 games and he just was getting new ones every week. And so we started doing a game night and for about 10 years straight, I was playing games um, every single weekend on a Saturday for about 10 hours. Uh, so I was just getting every kind of imaginable type of uh, mechanic and type of game you could want to play. And that gave me a lot of knowledge for, for designing games in the future, which I'm super grateful for. Um, but uh, yeah, being an entrepreneur and then also enjoying games and enjoy, enjoying design one day, it just kind of clicked that I should be making a game and just try it out. And it worked and I just kept, kept going. That's cool. What, what is your take on the explosion of board games on Kickstarter? Like, how do you see it from where you are? Um, because I mean, uh, I, it, it, I think it hasn't moved to like the top. I think it's one of the, it's just, is it hasn't moved to the top category yet. It, it's the top that? category. Yeah. yeah I is. mean, and it's just the amount of board games are just unbelievable. And from some of a lot of these interviews, we've kind of equated it to a, a lot of people. It's their Friday night unplugging from this thing, you know, trying to right. get it. Right. Right. <laughs> Is that kind of what you see or what do you see it on your end of going, um, man, this, this market is just, it's just, it's going gangbusters right now, uh, on Kickstarter. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with people wanting to get away from electronics. Um, even if you play an MMO or you play a game online with other players, you're still going to be you behind the screen. Right. And like, there's that, that social aspect, but there's something completely different about sitting down with the table of people. And I think that's very attractive. Uh, and it's also interesting because it's a, it can be a good icebreaker. It can be a good way to explore social aspects. Like there's a lot of games that just cover social aspects or they'll make you think about stuff differently. Um, there's one called the mind that, that everybody has to kind of figure out what's going on 
uh, and put down their cards in the right order with numbers on them, but they can't speak. So you're just doing like gestures like, maybe I should put mine down next because I have like a 99 and there's no chance anybody has one that's different than me, but you got to make sure nobody has that hundred, right? right? And so, right. you know, stuff like that where you're playing off cues that have to be in person, that, that's a really interesting experience that you probably wouldn't have outside of an exhibit or a board game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Well, let's flip over to the actual Kickstarter. So we're talking and you've got, uh, and you've got about 15 days to go in the campaign. Mm -hmm. And you had a $50,000 goal, which is actually pretty high in the board game world, you know, from, from everything I've seen, uh, but yeah. you've crushed that goal. I mean, you're sitting at 150,000 or above 150,000, but you've got a ton of backers over 1200 backers. That's a lot of orders, which is awesome. Um, mm -hmm. So for this campaign, particularly, what was some of the strategies before you went to launch that you, you know, were there any metrics you wanted to hit while you're running Facebook ads? What were you doing before you launched this so you knew you were going to have success? So I built a, a newsletter, which has been a big thing for me. I've got about 3,000 subscribers on it now. Um, and they're accounting for, it's almost a third of the, the backers that I have. So like that was a huge boost uh, to just have from day one, right? Because the first 48 hours, you want to have as much traffic as you can, because that's most likely going to depict what your whole ending funding is going to be. Mm. Um, so building, building that community and that, that newsletter, and then... Uh, yeah, just having everything planned out and, and ready from the beginning and making sure that I, I've got connections with the right people who are going to influence and, and help uh, with the campaign were pretty big. It, when it comes to influencers, was there anything that you were doing in terms of, or was it mostly just friendship? Or was there any sort of, uh, you know, um, I think in some scenarios, you, you know, you pay an influencer. Was there anything like that? Or how, how did you set up and work those uh, influencer relationships? Yeah, I usually, I mean, I don't like to pay influencers to do anything. I, I build my, most of my relationships from going to board game conventions because that's where the big influencers are going to go. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people that go to board game conventions. I mean, some of them have uh, upward of 150,000 people going over a couple of days. Um, so you're going to just meet so many people in the industry and different reviewers. There's people who just create board game content for a living. Uh, and if they like your games, they'll come and talk to you. And then you, you just build a mutual relationship. Like I send them free games and they can review them and do what they want with them. Um, but I, I think that's a more valuable connection and it's more genuine than paying reviewers, uh, which is also fine, a uh, way to do it if you're getting started, especially like, and you don't have somebody who's, who's going to be there from the beginning. Um, but just, just reaching out to people and giving them a pitch for your game and seeing if they want to review them is a really good way to get those influencers going. And then. Uh, I do run some ads on like Board Game Geek, which is a site just for board games. Uh, and then I'll do some Facebook ads um, here and there just to kind of trickle in a little bit extra. But it's not a significant amount of the funding that I usually get. A lot of that comes from, it's like half Kickstarter traffic and then half of my audience and, and just meeting in the middle from that. But yeah. the biggest thing for me has been going to conventions, I think. Yeah, well, I think, and I think that's one of the biggest differences for board games for anything else right now, products or anything, anything else on Kickstarter is that there's just no there's no convention for documentaries or something, right? Right. They're just, you know, right. there it probably is, but it's not that big, right? Right. Or, but it's not, it's like, it doesn't have this beautiful tie into Kickstarter. It's just, you know, right. that's what, you know, so it's like, you know, I mean, even like for us, we're, we've got a film that we did on Kickstarter and it's going to be at South by Southwest this year. Um, but it's like, well, it's just one thing. It's, there's no, there's not 500 of them, you know, there's right. not this community around them where you're meeting other people and, and shaking down. So I, I think that that's been a huge, huge thing going on right now. Um, and I, and I don't see how that this board or this convention world fits into the other scenarios right now. I just don't see it. So 
you know, in, in regards to this Kickstarter, is there anything that you see kind of behind the scenes that's sort of shocked you at all? Or like, oh man, we're, we've got a whole bunch of sales from Brazil. I, I don't know. Is there anything that's been like, that's weird. I, I, I didn't expect that. The last campaign, I did have some surprises. Like Singapore was uh, the number one, the number one city was in Singapore. And that like, I just came from left field for me. Like I was expecting Tokyo or somewhere in America, right? Like right, right. no question, maybe London. Those are usually my top three, but like, yeah, Singapore just had so many interested people that like the Japanese culture and they wanted to experience something new in board games because they have a board game culture there. Um, and I got to talk to a lot of the backers and they were really excited about it. So that it's really cool to see something like that grow. And then another culture is taking something that you've created that you uh, didn't expect to, to grow there. I, it makes you feel really cool as a creator too. Sure. I bet. Yeah. I, I, but that's what I love about Kickstarter too, is when the weird things that yeah. I mentioned, like, Oh, I had no idea that we were big there. No, no idea. That's cool. So what happens, you know, 15 days go by, um, a couple more weeks for all the money to, to drop in the bank account, but what starts to happen for you to get these games into uh, backers' hands? Yeah, for me, I've got to work with my manufacturer in China. I work with a company called Panda Manufacturing. They have uh, their own factory in Shenzhen, but they're based out of uh, Canada. So mm -hmm. they basically have a U.S. team, a Canadian team, and a, and a Chinese team, and they can communicate in English, which is much easier. So I'm just going back and forth with them, sending samples. Um, because we have a good relationship already, I've been getting samples for these new games I'm doing for about four months. Uh, just to, to kind of rush things along because I have super complicated 3D plastic pieces. I'm kind of leading in that in the board game industry and some of my molds are like 10 grand just mm -hmm. for one game. Um, so I got to get on top of that ahead of time because those molds take 30 days to, to produce, for example. Uh, you got to think about all of that. So once I get all the samples and everything's ready, I send all of the artwork in and I get some uh, actual physical proofs shipped to me. I make sure that they're good. And then from there, it's it's just telling them, okay, I need this many, and then we need to prepare the shipping, and I need to make sure that the fulfillment center's on track for that, and then we need to try to hit this window of like from when things get to the port in China, and then they gotta go and they gotta land in all these four different locations, and we gotta try to ship them to all the customers in the same time, because right. people are not very happy if they get their game two months after the first person, but like, no, you know, they're, they're on different ships going different different places. It's kind of how it works sometimes. Yeah, but man, people do not like that, and they're the first people to be like, what do you mean I gotta wait an extra week? Yeah, exactly. Please, man, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing my best, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. So, and then what does like the next year look like for you um, after, you know, obviously this game is successful, but what, what happens for this game, you know, for the next year? Is it something that you continue to um, uh, distribute, promote more? Is, do you start working on another game? What, what does the next year look like? Yeah, for me, it's a little different because I'm doing a series of games. So I'm releasing three every year. Uh, I've released... So I did my last Kickstarter, got the first three. This one's for the next three. And I'm also doing some like smaller games that I licensed from Japanese designers as add-ons. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have two more years, which I'm going to launch in January both times if everything continues according to plan to do the next six. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm kind of locked in for that. And all the games, like I said, it can mix together in different ways. So I'm just adding value to those past releases uh, which helps me sell them through my own sources, right? Uh, so I'm just setting up and, and pushing those games. I send them to, to reviewers as many as I can for free because that's really going to grow the network and, and pay itself back off. Mm -hmm. um, so it's nice to run a Kickstarter because you have all this extra stock that you can get to both sell and to give to reviewers and start pushing for the next one. Um, so it's it's constant ramp ramp up, but it's it's a lot of endless work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like I mean, so that's good that you've got like a, it sounds like your long tail is set up for at least the next two years or so. 
And then how about we go out farther than that? I mean, where do you see yourself in five years? Do you see yourself, you know, just continuing down a series like this? Do you see yourself completely pivoting at all? Where do you see five years from now? Yeah, uh, so I have a plan already that I'm going to switch and start a, a company making, basically I'm converting shipping containers into a prefab modular architectural system where you have a one 20 foot container become your only living space that you need and you can like rearrange things however you want in this room so it becomes multi-purpose mm. and put these pegs in the walls so i've designed this like four years ago and i've been really wanting to make one so i decided my plan is to just get through this series of games uh, and do whatever else i can along the way so i can save up enough money to launch into this next company um that's that's where i want to be in five years and then Hopefully, if that turns out successful, I can retire at like 40 and study physics or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So if you were, uh, let's go with one more question. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what would be the one game that you'd bring to play? Well, probably bring something really heavy that has a lot of different strategic elements so you wouldn't get bored, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, you got a long time. So what are you playing? Exactly. Uh, Man, there's, so there's some games uh, called 18xx games, and they're just these like 5 to 20-hour games about trains, but you're just investing, and there's like stocks and all these different overlapping elements, and it's just complete pure economics. And you can play it as many times as you want to. It'll turn out different every time because people are trading companies and like investing in different things in different ways. Um, and that system, you can like change it just a little bit here and there to change the game, and so there's like 100 plus 18xx games that are all based on the same thing. So if you bring one of those, you can probably tweak it as many times as you want to do and keep playing it, right? That sounds good. That sounds great. Well, where can people find out more information? How can they dive into your world, you know, take this interview and, and kind of, you know, start exploring kind of what you're working on and, and, uh, and meet you and stuff? Definitely. So uh, my website is jordandraper.com. Uh, it's where I have all my games. You can go check them out and read about them. I'm on Twitter at the Jordan Draper. Also on Instagram under that same tag. Um, and then you can email me at talk at jordandraper.com. And then my Kickstarter, which is the most important thing, is uh, it's called the Tokyo Series. So you can just search Tokyo Series on Kickstarter or you can search Jordan Draper and that'll come up there. Awesome. Well, Jordan, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know running, you know, middle of a Kickstarter is busy time. So I always appreciate when people take time out of this to, to have these conversations, because I think it's not only great for me to learn and, and hear about what you're working on, but it's great for all my listeners too. It's, uh, it's really, uh, really valuable that you're, you know, willing to talk about what you're doing on these campaigns. The games look awesome. Um, you've got obviously huge success. You got a, the next two years looks like all planned out here. So I'm excited to see kind of where these things go. So Jordan, I appreciate it again. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day. Cool. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great. Awesome. All right. How about that interview? I told you guys Jordan was awesome. Jordan, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to sit down and talk about crowdfunding and your board games and, and what you're doing to be successful. Awesome, awesome story. Very inspirational. Um, you know, I wish we all could get to travel like Jordan could, right? Wouldn't it be nice to just every three months kind of gallivant uh, across the world? That would be awesome. So, all right, guys. Uh, so we got more episodes coming up next week. So again, like I said, make sure you're a subscriber to Successfully Funded. Tell your friends. Leave us a review. All of those things are immensely helpful. If you need help with your crowdfunding campaign, do not hesitate to reach out. My email is jeff at woodshed.agency. And if you just literally are on any of our websites or any social media, just reach out. Um, it's not that hard. Uh, but let's go ahead and kick it to a song, right? So since it's 
freezing out in most of the world here. Um, why don't we listen to a Sugar People song that we wrote uh, called uh, Warm Fire. And let's just like, get all curled up and warm and talk about love, all right? All right, guys. Hope you guys have a great rest of the week, and I'll talk to you all later. So take Like a fairy tale